We are starting a new series today, a new series on the stewardship of life. Life is good, being stewards of the gift of life. And so we're excited to bring this series, and it's an important series for us today. It's of utmost urgency as we think about the importance of life. In fact, uh, right now the, the Supreme Court is weighing a, a case uh, that's, that's heavy on uh, the hearts of, of many people. It's the Dobbs case. And I was able to listen to some of the oral arguments uh, that were made uh, to the Supreme Court justices. And one of the comments that was made was this. They said, it's not right that a state should have to force a woman to do that with her body, to go through with a pregnancy. Uh, This illustrates a worldview that's completely contrary to the Christian worldview. And we hear statements like that, or we hear statements even that Christians don't love women because of our views on certain things. And how do we respond? What are we to think? Is this something that we should engage? We believe this is an urgent, urgent topic that needs to be addressed uh, by the church. And so Pastor Nate and I thought it was wise to to look at uh, this topic and, and the importance of life from a biblical perspective. So the next two weeks, he will be bringing messages that make the case for life and show how we can defend the case for life, specifically in the public square with those who are not Christians. But today I want to set the framework, set the the agenda, look at this from a big perspective as we look at the stewardship of life. We're going to look at it in two different ways. One, I'm going to look at three basic truths that we need to understand, and then we're going to take those truths and look at one implication of those truths. So three truths and then one implication for those truths. First and foremost, we we need to understand that everything belongs to God. So the first truth is that everything belongs to God. So we want to focus on the reality of who God is and who we are in relationship to Him. And God is not only the creator of all things, but all things belong to Him. Uh, To put it another way, God owns everything. Uh, Psalm 21 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. Everything belongs to the Lord. Everything is His. All of creation. The earth itself is not its own. There's not a stone or a grain of sand that does not belong to God. It is His. Not only does all of creation belong to God, but all of creation is sustained by God. As the, the scripture that, that Adam read, 
that he is before all things, that in him all things hold together, that our God not only is the rightful owner of all things, but loves and cares for and sustains his creation. Jesus points this out, that the birds and the flowers are overseen by God. And he is the rightful ruler over it as well. Abraham Kuyper once said this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, cannot claim mine. That's our God. He is the creator. He is the owner of all things. And he is the sustainer of all things. But not only that, but all creation owes its allegiance to God owes its allegiance to God. In fact, Psalm 148, a beautiful psalm. As the psalms are capping off. Psalm 148, Psalm 149 and 150, capping off the book of the psalms, talking about pra- giving praise to the Lord. So I love this. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all you angels. Praise Him, all his host. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. Isn't that great? He established them forever and ever. And He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist. Stormy wind fulfilling His word. Mountains in all hills, fruit trees in all cedars. Beasts and livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints. For the people of Israel who are near him, praise the Lord. Do you get that? Everything in all of creation owes allegiance and praise to God. Not only are all things made by God and belong to God, not only are all things sustained by God, but those things that are made owe allegiance and praise to the one who made them. All of creation is called out by the psalmist to praise and honor their creator. And here's the problem. Romans 1 says that we were made by this creator. 
We understand who he is, and yet we don't give him allegiance. We do not give him thanks. We do not give him praise. Instead, we turn away from giving him praise, and we worship created things. And Paul says in the book of Romans that this is an example of God giving us over to our depraved minds. In our depravity, in our rejection and rebellion of God, we worship created things instead of the creator. And those created things for us today in our culture is the idol of self. It's us. It's determining that we get, to, we get to set the agenda. We are the owners of ourselves. We don't belong to anyone but ourselves. There is no sovereign here, is our cry. But the truth that everything belongs to God is general. But we can't miss the specific application. Right? That not only do all things belong to God, but you belong to God. You belong to God. God's ownership doesn't extend merely to rocks, trees, and your cat. It extends to you. He has rightful ownership. His rights to you. God not only created you, He is sovereign over you. And ultimately, we belong to Him. That means that fundamentally, we are not our own. We don't have ultimate say over ourselves, only God does. one implication of this against our current cultural backdrop is that we do not have the right to do whatever we want with our bodies. We do not have the right to do whatever we want with our bodies. We know this intrinsically, don't we? A young person who cuts themselves as their way of feeling alive is betraying the very life that they've been called to care for. They're seeking Maybe validation and meaning in the life of chaos and determining it themselves when it's already available through the one who took on chaos and was victorious. And the loving thing to do is not to sit back and just let them be them. Let them live their truth. The loving thing to do is to intercede. To stop it. To care more about them than they might care about themselves in that moment. We are not our own. We belong to God. And this has implications for the way that we live. We don't get to set the agenda, and better yet, we don't need to set the agenda. We don't need to set the agenda. His belonging to God frees us from having to give ourselves value. 
If we do not belong to God but ourselves, then we have pressure to define who we are and what matters. And we often see this in our culture, don't we? I get to shape and craft who I am, but the problem is in order for me to feel vindicated or validated, others need to give approval to how I'm expressing myself. One author writes this, Everyone is on their private journey journey of self-discovery and self-expression. That at times, the modern life feels like billions of people in the same room shouting their own name so loud so that everyone knows they exist and who they are. Which is a fairly accurate description of social media. To be recognized is to draw the gaze and attention of others. To be affirmed is to draw their positive gaze. But if we're all responsible for creating and expressing our own identities, then everyone is in competition with everyone else for our limited attention. And no one is secure enough in their own identity to ground us with our approval. Who can cope with such fierce competition? What an exhausting reality. The pressure to be able to define ourselves, to give ourselves value. And to need to look to others to validate. But what if that's not how we get value? What if our value doesn't come from something that we determine? What if it's written? What if it's woven into the very fabric of our being? What if it doesn't come from within, but is declared over us? By someone greater. Well, that's freeing. I don't need to determine my worth. Someone else does that already. And we have to be very careful. Because even in the abortion discussion, we can default to a false way of thinking. That life should have been preserved because they might have been X, Y, or Z. You know what we're doing there? They're valuable if they did this. No, that's not what we see in Scripture. We see that each person is infinitely valuable and worthy of respect and dignity regardless. And that's because of who God says they are. You see, each person is created in the image of God. They're created in the image of God. These are the words of of Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. Listen to this. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created male and female in his image as his representatives. And Psalm 8 declares the beauty of this. I love this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings 
and crowned him with glory and honor. When I look at everything around me, when I look up all creation, why in the world, God, would you care for me? And yet you do. The psalmist is just in awe. Like the Psalm 8 is kind of a reflection on Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And it's kind of looking back and saying, this is incredible. The psalmist gets it. I have value, and that's amazing. Like, who are we that you should say that? Like, we're not worthy of that, and yet you declare it. That's who we are. God gives us amazing value, but unfortunately, it is through our autonomy that we have rebelled against God. He makes us as his representatives on earth, and yet we say, no, God, I'm going to do this. And in our culture, the loving thing to do is, is to let someone be the autonomous self. We can't go there. Because the loving thing for God would be a, a, to allow us to walk in our rebellion against him. But he can't do that. He doesn't do that. Instead, our God enters in and takes punishment on the cross for our behalf to rescue us. <laughs> he provides a way. That's his love. <laughs> My love is so deep that I can't let you be kings of your own life. He knew what was best, and he secured it with his loving condescension by coming down while we're still prancing around like young Simba saying, I just want to be king. Because no, I'm, I'm going to provide a better way. That, that's not what's best for you. I love you too much to, uh, to allow you to walk in that and think that's, a, that's the way to live. And he provided a way. Well, not only does everything belong to God and we belong to God, but also, if you're a parent, this is a good truth for all of us to understand, is your kids belong to God. Your kids are loved deeply by the God who created them, and ultimately they belong to Him. If your kids belong to God, that means they only secondarily belong to us. This means that our sense of ownership does not give meaning, they already have meaning. Because your kids have value as image bearers. They, too, are image bearers of God. Today, it seems that kids only have value if their parent desires them. Now, we'll talk about this more throughout the series, but this is incompatible with the Christian worldview. Psalm 139 says that we've been knit together by God. 
We don't start reflecting him when we reach some point of viability, as defined in Roe v. Wade. No, separating the personhood from the body in that type of way is self-defeating for other worldviews. It's like trying to get in a water gun fight against Lake Michigan while standing in Lake Michigan. You're filling it up and squirting it back and nothing's happening. The only thing you're proving is your own stubbornness. And that's what happens when we, when we borrow from the Christian worldview and try to attack the Christian worldview. It's silliness. And yet we have to be careful. We should not only be confident in our beliefs, but we also need to be sympathetic and care for those who are lost. You see, the Christian worldview does not have anything to lose. It's true. And its truth is only being seen. And the insufficiency of other worldviews are being revealed more and more. I love this. This is from the book by Nancy Piercy, Love Thy Body. She writes this, Abortion supporters have lost the argument on the scientific level. They no longer deny that an embryo is biologically human. As a result, they have switched tactics to an argument based on personhood, defined ultimately by their own personal views and values. And when their view is codified into law, their private values are imposed on everyone else. This switch in tactics was evident in a fascinating debate a few years ago. It began when Professor Stanley Fish wrote in a journal, First Things, that pro-lifers have no right to bring their views into the public arena. Why not? Because their views are based on faith, he claimed, while abortion advocates base their views on science. Robert George of Princeton challenged Fish to a debate at a meeting of the American uh, Political Science Association. In his paper, George argued that in reality, it is the pro-life position that is based on science. As is customary, the two scholars exchanged their papers ahead of time. When the meeting opened, Fish threw George's paper on the table and announced, Professor George is right, and he is right to correct me. The admission was met with stunned silence. Fish later explained his startling turnaround. Supporters of abortion have typically cast themselves as defenders of rational science against the forces of ignorance and superstition, he said. But when science began pushing back the moment that life begins, they shifted tactics. Nowadays, it is the pro-lifers who make the scientific question of when the beginning of life occurs the key one, while the pro-choicers want to transform the question to a metaphysical or religious one by distinguishing between mere biological life and moral life. So you're taking and using Christian categories and applying them to a secular worldview, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. You see, we can try to redefine reality, but the truth is that our kids are image bearers from the very beginning. They have value, and they have dignity. They're worthy of life and of being protected and valued. And parents are called 
to care well for their kids and exercise their God-given authority for their kids' good. Christian parenting also recognizes uh, God's loving instruction. It's interesting that in, in a world that prioritizes autonomy in the self, we still like to claim that our kids are our, our own. Some push all the way and give their kids full autonomy, but that doesn't work. People often rightfully recognize the limits. A two-year-old who gives the choice between candy and broccoli for dinner will choose candy every time. If your kid chooses broccoli, then your kid's the exception, right? Most are are going straight for that. And and the loving thing for the parent isn't saying, hey, I'm just going to let my kid be them, and they can do what they want to do because this makes them happy, and that's the best thing for them. No. In order for the parent to give their kid true freedom, true ability to enjoy life, they're going to withhold their bondage to their sweet tooth, right? They're not going to be allow them to be controlled by their craving. And we understand this as we're parenting. We want our kid to be nourished instead of being driven by the desire of the moment. But what's interesting is that we can notice the value of authority when we're the ones doing the limiting, when we're the ones giving the instruction, but not when we are under the loving care of another, one who is infinitely more wise and good. You see, our kids ultimately belong to this God. The best parenting, the one that leads the most flourishing for our children, is parenting that aligns with his revealed will with his good instruction. This is why Ephesians 6.4 instructs fathers to raise up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It should align with God's good instruction. So everything belongs to God. You belong to God. Your kids belong to God. What does that imply? What does that result in? Well, that means that we are a steward of life. We are a steward of life. So we've seen the biblical case that we don't have ultimate ownership, and that's right and good. We don't set the rules according to our own wants and and desires. And there's there's a freedom in the idea that we don't have to define value, we don't have to place value on us, but that freedom does not mean lack of responsibility. That freedom does not mean lack of responsibility. In fact, our image-bearing also implies something else. Our image-bearing means that we should be stewarding life. We're responsible to God as stewards of life. One theologian put it like this, and I think this is helpful. He says, the imago Dei, that means the image of God, is a function, a royal vocation for humanity to reflect the reign of God in their stewardship over creation. They pursue that royal task by protecting human life, resisting ideologies 
of power where brutal monarchs try to monopolize the image for themselves and caring for the earth and the animal world. Do we get that? One of the aspects of being created in the image of God is that we're called to be stewards over creation. Called to be stewards over creation. Sometimes we think of being in the image of God and that gives us value, dignity, and worth, but like, what does that actually mean? Right? It can be a little bit more nebulous. Well, one of the things that means is, is the way that we live reflects God. And so if we say we're made in the image of God and we put like a sub-point of what one thing that that means, one thing that that means is we care for life here on earth. And we care for life here on earth generally and specifically caring for and protecting human life. So we can say it like this. One of the ways that we image God is by caring for life on earth, specifically caring for and protecting human life. And this is not simply one theologian's opinion. This is biblical. Psalm 8 that we referenced earlier continues after the verses that we already read and says this. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and birds in the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever pass along the paths of the seas. Genesis 9 also talks about there's a unique responsibility to care for human life and to understand the severity of killing other people because they're made in God's image. So again, we could say it like this. One of the ways that we image God is by caring for life on earth specifically caring for and protecting human life. And we know this instinctively. Moms care for and nurture their children. They desire the best for them. It's why there's commercials and advertisements that seek to normalize abortion and proclaim that it doesn't affect the mother. You don't need to champion what is natural but you do need to seek to normalize what comes naturally abnormal. But it's not just that moms that are called to be good stewards of their children, it's dads too. The Christian sexual ethic doesn't try to have both mom and dad free from the burden of a child, but champions the good gift of a child and emphasizes responsibility for both mom and dad. Both are responsible to God For the gift of life. You see, stewarding life means that we're accountable to the author and the sustainer of life. We recognize that we're not the ultimate owner, but we've been entrusted to care for the things that belong to someone else, someone with great authority. That's what stewardship means that we've been entrusted to care for things that belong to another, someone with great authority. And that's what we're called to as Christians. We're accountable to God for our stewardship of what belongs to him. We've been entrusted to care for our lives, to care for the lives of our children, if we're parents, and life more generally for his glory and for our neighbor's good. And stewarding life also means protecting the vulnerable. One aspect of stewarding life and one that will 
continue to pay close attention to in this series is protecting vulnerable life. The call to protect life echoes throughout Scripture. In the Ten Commandments, we're commanded not to murder, which is the prohibition, but all throughout the book of Deuteronomy and all throughout Christian reflection on that Sixth Commandment is the positive use of the Sixth Commandment. There's the negative use of don't kill someone, and there is the positive use of value, champion, lift high the good gift of life. That's what we're called to do. That's what we're called to do as we, as we seek to love others. You see, God knows what's best for us. And one way we reflect his good provision is by reflecting him and caring for the lives of others, particularly the vulnerable. That's why James writes in James 1.28 that true religion cares for orphans and widows. There is a direct connection between this caring for orphans and widows and a call for us today to care for the helpless and the needy in the womb. Those who do not have a voice of their own. Christians are called to care for and give voice to the voiceless. What does that look like? Well, that's one of the things we'll be unpacking throughout this series. And I look forward to learning and growing alongside each of you as we seek to steward life well. See, if you're a Christian here this morning, you belong to God. Not only as your creator, but as your redeemer. Your understanding of the call to stewardship is not to earn God's favor or appease the wrathful God. Instead, it is a response to the loving God who rescued you. This means that we don't view abortion as simply a culture war issue that we must win in order to please God. God is pleased with us because of Christ. We are fully secure. No, instead, we look at this issue as a way to love others because we have been loved. Our desire is that life is treasured and valued and that all who find true life in Christ, that all find life in him, not only as their creator, but as their king, as the one who came to rescue them. There is hope for all who turn from their sin and place their faith and trust in Christ. You see, we simply don't want people to acknowledge and come to grips with merely the Christian worldview, but to bow their knee to the Christian God the one who came for them, the the one who loves them. That's our desire. That won't uh, change our position. Our position is our position, but it should change and shape our posture and how we relate to one another and how we seek to love others and bring them alongside. We seek for all to find ultimate hope in Jesus. You see, if we are our own, if we belong to us, then we have to try to be our own Savior. And that doesn't work. There's only one way. It's not through us. But if we belong to another, then we have ultimate hope. I want to end with the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism. It says this, What is my only hope in life and death? 
Listen to that. What is my only hope in life and death? That I am not my own. (laughs) That's how it starts. That I am not my own. But belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He has preserved me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Let's live for him this week. Let's live for him by being stewards of the gift of life. Let's pray together. Dear Father, I thank you so much for your word. Father, I thank you for the gift of life that you have given to us in this room as we're using the breath that you've given us and the minds that you've given us and the wills that you've given us. And Father, I pray that each of these is used for your glory and the good of those around us. Father, I pray as we rightfully understand that we belong to God, that everything belongs to you. And we rightfully understand our role as steward of life, proclaimers of the goodness that you have given. Father, I pray that we can love our neighbors well. Father, neighbors who who are, are confused, who may see pregnancy as a burden instead of a gift that you've given. Allow us to be able to speak truth. Allow us to be able to come alongside. Allow us to be able to champion life in all the various areas you've given us, Father. For the good of those precious children and for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.